Welcome back to Out Loud, the Selective Mutism podcast. I'm Chelsea. And I'm Anne, Chelsea's mom. And today we have a very special guest, um, Dr. Stephen Kurtz, who is the founder of Kurtz Psychology Consulting, which was formed in 2014. Um, They serve children and families facing emotional, behavioral, and psychological challenges. And Stephen Kurtz is um, a recognized expert in child psychology, and we have him here to talk about selective mutism. He founded several programs at NYU Child Study Center and Child Mind Institute. He also created Brave Buddies and Mighty Mouth programs, which both serve children with selective mutism. Um, He's also a master trainer in parent-child interaction therapy, PCIT, which is used for oppositional and defiant disorders and was adapted to PCITSM to treat selective mutism. Right. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Yeah. Well, welcome. We're so thrilled to have you. My pleasure to be here. Looking forward to it. So I think last time we saw you in person was um, in New York at um, CMI for the Brave Buddies camp. We had reached out to you actually. and th- Actually, we Skyped that day. We were up at the beach that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and you invited Chelsea to come along and just volunteer at the camp, which I, I think was really actually like a life-changing, it was really yeah. an event for Chelsea. So I just want to thank you for giving her that opportunity mm-hmm. um, because that was just, it was an amazing experience. Yeah, that's when I knew I wanted to go into psychology for my undergrad and eventually led me to where where I am today. It's awesome. I feel like it. this invention was the gift that keeps on giving, so it's always great to hear that. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. great. So we were actually surprised to learn that you had left uh, CMI mm-hmm. in 2014, I guess. was yeah. Is that when you started your own practice? Yes, and I, but actually I had been in my own practice for 13 years before I ever went to NYU Child Study Center. Okay. So it was kind of returning to being my own boss. Okay. okay. And then in 2014, is that when you started the Mighty Mouth program? It's when we uh, changed the name from Brave Buddies to Mighty Mouth just to have everybody have their own kind of distinct entity, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, and I think everyone, I, I know in the kind of the circles when we see online and with our podcast, everyone seems to know Brave Buddies. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about Mighty Mouse? So it's the same model. We think more generically of a selective mutism group intervention. So in published studies now, in peer-reviewed journals, we talk more about uh, the Selective Mutism Group Intervention, and the particular name that, uh, you know, each place calls it is less important than the underlying principles, which I'm happy to say are incredibly consistent across the sites. Are you sitting down? Yeah, we are. <laughs> uh, the camp is now running in uh, 10 different sites in three countries on two continents. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What countries? Uh, Canada, the U.S., and Hong Kong. Wow, Hong Kong. And actually, starting ne- a week from tomorrow, we're starting the first official uh, certification trainings in PCITSM. So broadening beyond the folks who just happen to come through my doors or, uh, you know, a couple of places that I've trained, we're right. broadening. And in the first 18 people we're training, four are German-speaking from Switzerland and Germany, wow. four from Hong Kong. Uh, some from the Midwest, uh, so we're really glad to be extending those trainings and making it more available. 
That is really funny because we had someone from Hong Kong reach out to us Mm, after we did our PCIT episode saying he left us a five-star review and he said that he practices in Hong Kong. Very cool. We love them five-star reviews. Nothing like positive. I know. We love them. And just as a side note, Chelsea had actually gone into Boston recently and volunteered for a day. I went to Boston Child Study Center. Awesome. I believe was started by someone who trained under you That's the, the sm program yeah jamie yeah. had been a trainee with me she moved to bu they uh, uh did the program there as well and then she also replicated down at uh, florida international yeah i was really impressed by what they're doing there and i did want to just say that we love your website it's an awesome website it's a great resource for parents thank um, you and do you do. mean the selectivemutismlearning.org website or our practice website? No, just uh, your practice. Well, the kurtzpsychology.com. Thank you. At yep. least when I look at that, I mean, there's so many resources on there for parents, um, you know, and free. You have the um, SM101, is it? That's the... So the, that's on the other website? That's on the other one. And I guess you'll put that in your show notes, but selectivemutismlearning.org has been free, will be free, and I can't believe how many thousands of people have actually taken the course. Mm -hmm. And we now give certificates when people complete it with 80% or better on the quizzes. And you can take them because we're good behaviorists, Chelsea. They take it as many times as they need to, to meet the criterion. (laughs) Yeah, it was very ABA. (laughs) Uh, Uh, I actually, I just took it because they told me to take it for my volunteering at Mm -hmm. Boston Child Study Center. So I, I guess the big, question for me as a mom is so many parents we get so many questions in that we see in a lot of the Facebook pages um, you know you're in New Jersey or New York New York New York so for there's so many people that live remotely and can't really travel to a place to receive treatment Um, so do you have any tips for parents that do live remotely like what would the number one thing you say to them be it happens that next Saturday the 29th I'm doing a Facebook live event from a support group in New Jersey. And the topic of that is going to be doing intensive treatment. So I think of intensive treatments really in four different ways. One is doing any of these camp models. That's intensive because you're doing about 30 hours of treatment in a week. But two other models that are similar is when I go to live with a family for a week or they come to live with us for a week. And those are two other forms of intensive. So I am heading to Spain to speak a Russian speaking kid with SM and ODD in a English speaking school in Spain. Go figure that. I wish people could see my face because my jaw has <laughs> dropped. <laughs> like I actually can't. You're well, physically traveling there? Physically traveling there. So here's the deal. It may be the most effective model. A woman named Ruth Perednik gave the keynote address to the Selective Mutism Conference a couple of years ago, and she said in Israel, she starts at every treatment in the home. So here's the problem. It's probably the most effective way to do it, but it's the least scalable and the least sustainable. And I'm always just kind of trying to balance those two considerations. So intensive treatments, needless to say, are more expensive, but they're also more effective, and they may actually provide the minimum dose you need to jumpstart good treatment. And the fourth of the intensives that I think of is when you use medicine to supplement a behavioral treatment. So just to kind of summarize that, camp is intensive, 
family comes to live with us for a week is intensive. We go to live with them for a week. It's intensive. And medicine adds intensity to an otherwise reasonably good behavioral treatment. Okay. I was just wondering, how many kids do you that you see do you think have SM alone versus SM with other comorbid conditions? Uh, it's a good question. The old literature said that not, more than 90% of kids had co-occurring or what we call comorbid social phobia, but that came from a different era of how social phobia was diagnosed. And now it requires for a diagnosis that the child tells you that they uh, anticipate embarrassment or humiliation. Mm-hmm. So with that criteria, about half of our kids have co-occurring social anxiety disorder in addition to SM. But the other comorbidities that are common is uh, some kind of oppositional defiant disorder, which is different completely than SM. And then lower occurring things like ADHD and uresis, separation anxiety. So if they're there for any given kid, we obviously have to take it into account. So bottom line answer is comorbidities, co-occurrences are very, very common. Mm. They make me roll my sleeves up, but I have long sleeves. <laughs> As Chelsea is my reference, so selective mutism and anxiety. Um, so in most cases, do you think the SM is cured and then the anxiety persists? Or some people, we, we, I guess Chelsea and I get mind boggled. Some people say, I never had anxiety, but I had SM. And in our mind, we just can't see that. <laughs> anxiety is, anxiety is a conclusion somebody draws about their experience. There, there's no such thing in and of itself as anxiety, because if you, if your heart is palpitating and beating out of your chest and you're sweating and you have headaches and stomach aches, yes, most people would call that anxiety. But what if kids downregulate and they actually go into kind of a Zen coma, if you will, or sort of a Buddhist, I'm not going to let this bother me anymore. They don't experience that as air quotes anxiety we would infer that they're anxiously avoiding. So as a true behaviorist, I'm not labeling anxious or not. I'm labeling approach and avoidance because I can see it. I can count it. I can observe it. But not everybody experiences it as as anxiety. I remember we had a three-year-old girl with uh, SM as well as some other anxiety. Cute, fabulous, just wonderful, wonderful kid. And she said to her mom as she was trying to get into the uh, ballet room, you know, at a, at a group lesson, she said, just tell me how to move my feet. Like mm-hmm. she was just stuck there and she wasn't feeling what you or I would feel if a plane was starting to crash or if we knew that we were about to get hit or if we were afraid of snakes and all of a sudden the snake came in view. That thing you and I call anxiety, okay. but kids don't necessarily that. report it or experience it. Yeah, I think the problem I have with that is when people, I see like parents on Facebook saying like, my kid doesn't have anxiety, they just don't want to talk. And then that makes me feel like, ouch. Yeah, yeah, I hate that. Show me a kid, show me a kid who doesn't want to. Right. So Um, I ask every family a question when I meet them now. And the question goes like this. I say to them, I'm about to ask you a question. If the answer is no, it doesn't mean anything. If the answer is yes, it's a good thing because I can build on that. And here's the question. Has your kid in any way, shape or form ever indicated any kind of motivation to get out of this mess that they're in? And the reason that I say no doesn't mean anything to me is it may just mean that the kid doesn't know that help is on the way. 
they may be demoralized because they've gone to three therapists and nothing actually has helped. So actually, it would be idiotic of them to think that they could get better. There's yeah. no proof of that. However, if the answer is yes to that, you know, they said, I'm tired of this. I don't want to be the kid who doesn't talk. Then it's a kernel of motivation that I can build on. But no doesn't mean anything to me in that context. Mm -hmm. When you were in grad school or doing your doctorate, did you ever did you learn about SM in school? I had no idea that there was such a thing. Yeah, that was one of my questions. Okay. How did you get interested in selective mutism or why? So the history, as best I can recall it, is this. I have a 32-year-old whose uh, classmate had SM in kindergarten, and they called me in and asked me to help out. And having only good learning theory and being a pretty good child behavior therapist, with only that behind me, I actually did much of what I do now. I met the kid at the class before anybody was there, played games that she liked, had her mom or dad, I forget which one, sit in with me until I could fade them out. And so that was one experience, and it kind of got tucked away until uh, 2002 when I met John Kohlmeyer, who I know has been a guest on your program. Uh, he and I enjoy presenting together. He brought me into what I think of as my modern era of putting this together. And I'm going to tell you something from a behavioral perspective. If I did the same good things with Jonathan with another kid and they didn't work, I don't know that I would have continued. And so when the therapist gets reinforced, usually for trying something innovative in a tough situation and it works, we're just humans, right? We're animals. We're more likely to repeat those same behaviors. So I think I had a good planning and a little bit of what we in Yiddish we call mazel, a little bit of luck uh, uh -huh. that combined and the rest was kind of history from there. Oh, so PCIT, the PCIT SM model. So yeah. when was that actually developed then? So I was kind of leading two lives. I had this one life for about 40% of the kids that I worked with that was heavily treating, assessing and treating kids with severe oppositional and defiant behavior. These are kids who get thrown out of daycare, thrown out of Head Start. I got an email this morning before you guys checked in with me of a kid whose neighbors called the police because the tantrums were so loud. That's half of my life. <laughs> uh, and the strategy that we evolved to using from grad school, when I was taught to play checkers with those kids, to the 80s, 90s, and the aughts when I was doing PCIT, you know, my life changed in terms of how I treated that. So picture me spending half my day with these oppositional kids, and then I'm getting these anxious kids, and I'm thinking, I need to build a relationship. Wait a second. I know how to build a relationship. I'm a PCIT guy. So for me, the connection was the science of relationship building was so good that if I could just get kids to trust me and not screw it up by asking them questions when I met them, then maybe I could help them take one risk at a time. Mm -hmm. That's really where the where the link happened because I was living in both uh, both worlds, if you will. Mm. So did you like immediately recognize that selective mutism wasn't like a defiant type of behavior or not behavior, but did I immediately recognize it? You know, I wish that I kept a journal of my thoughts every day <laughs> the way because I'll tell you the truth you end up rewriting history in your head a little bit. So I'm not quite sure when the light bulb went off. Uh, but I guess because I never put kids in time out for not speaking, I probably never got sucked into thinking it was oppositional defiant. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And if you ask me about the one time I did put a kid in timeout, I can't explain to you why I did. <laughs> we started, when Chelsea was little, we started down that timeout path. It just did not, yeah, didn't fly. It was, it was I did it with one very quirky <laughs> kid with comorbidities. It was a different situation, but I, I never repeated that. We, we don't go there. So do you think, again, for people that are really remote and don't have access to a, you know, yeah. SM trained therapist. So do you, in your minds, should any therapist be able to pick up, you know, PCIT, SM, you know, read about it, whatever, and then implement it and be successful? Let me first go back to your very first question, which is how can we help folks in rural areas or not near a lot of resources? Um, telehealth is proving to be a very, very robust, mm -hmm. effective way to deliver treatment. Admittedly, the laws in different jurisdictions have not caught up with the technology of doing this well. Mm -hmm. So I am allowed, for example, to write to the Oregon Board of Psychology and say, I have a six-year-old kid in Bend, Oregon. There's no resources there. I'm the go-to guy. This family wants me. Will you give me permission to do therapy? And they will say yes. I can go to California with a New Jersey license and practice 30 days out of a year without even notifying the board. Mm -hmm. But I can't go... 15 miles east of me to Connecticut without obtaining a full Connecticut license. So every day I am turning away Connecticut families. I mean, you, you live in New Hampshire, you know how close I am to Connecticut. Yeah. I could probably hold my breath and walk there. So the laws haven't caught up with the technology. That being said, the free learning course we have has shown through research to improve people's knowledge a lot and improve their skills a little. So I think if somebody has good intent, maybe some good general behavioral background, and they take that course, I think that they often can do really, really good work with people. I get those emails. I don't think people email me if they tried it and it didn't work so well. I tend to get the really positive reinforcing ones like, oh, my God, my student is in eighth grade and I helped him, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so I, I think it's a really good one can assume that that's a really good starting place and it is free so mm -hmm. yeah it's a great great resource um i just want to chelsea and i <laughs> i don't know chelsea and i you know we we participate sometimes in the different chat rooms and things on facebook and there was one and this was an instagram thing but it just um it's kind of sat with us <laughs> someone had put out a post and she was presenting herself as an sm specialist or knowledgeable person and she put out there about trauma can sometimes cause selective mutism um chelsea and i disagreed i guess in that in that selective mutism is caused by trauma so i guess my question is maybe i'm not wording it right but um are there different types of sm is if somebody becomes mute after trauma is that different than selective mutism most important thing to say in this regard is trauma causes terrible things. Mm -hmm. Trauma disrupts life trajectories. Trauma uh, at its worst in about 20% of folks causes post-traumatic stress disorder. Trauma is terrible, mm -hmm. but it doesn't tend to cause selective mutism. There are, uh, in all the years I'm doing this, and I've personally treated or supervised well over a thousand kids at this point, I could say we have no single case that we thought of that the SM was caused by trauma. Okay. That being said, mm -hmm. if you take Maya Angelou and her uh, 
revealing book, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, she talks about being mute after traumatically being raped by, I forget if it was an uncle or a family boyfriend or something, but somebody, as many of these situations happen with a known predator. Right. And then she was mute for a long time as a result. So I don't deny the possibility for anybody. But trauma tends to cause other problems, not selective mutism. And if you think about what selective mutism is, it's not a, it's not a logical conclusion to coping with trauma. Mm-hmm. It's logical, if you want to say, to cut out talking to the person who perpetrated it. Mm-hmm. But you'd have a whole bunch of other symptoms that are more commonly associated with trauma. Vigilance. Uh, uh, lots of other uh, specific symptoms. Mm-hmm. To answer your question, there probably are some different types of selective mutism. There's probably those associated with uh, more with language, severe language disorders, some that come more from a genetic predisposition to anxiety, and some that come from a kind of willful uh, oppositional stance, but not, but it's not the same as as oppositionality. And there's some data. There's a a professor in uh, University of Las, uh, Nevada, Las Vegas, who's published a bit on this, Chris mm-hmm. Kearney. So. Okay, thank you. Um, I was wondering if, um, you know, Chelsea, I, I think I've mentioned on a few podcasts, you're just kind of a fussy baby, <laughs> fussy, colicky, whiny. Don't you be talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> so my question is, I mean, there's no screening for SM, you know, your pediatrician or whatever. I remember one time they said to me, you know, do you think she's autistic? Um, like that's out there, but SM's not out there. Do you see any common, um, you know, personality traits, I guess, and in infants and in that that keep coming up from parents? There is a, a temperamental trait that's referred to as behavioral inhibition, um, developed by a famous psychologist named Jerome Kagan. And a lot of folks uh, understand behavioral inhibition to be a risk factor for the later development of different anxiety disorders. But this is not thought to be a causal pathway from behavioral inhibition to SM any more than it is a pathway risk factor to a lot of different kind of anxiety problems. So the typical kid has very insidious onset. You know, it's one observation that you kind of write off as a one-off, like, you know, uncle so-and-so is just a little too in your face that's why Chelsea didn't answer. And then in the grocery store, you know, they, she, the lady came up too quickly and asked her what grade she was in. But a year later, two years later, you have this accumulation of times that you know in your gut you've spoken for her and you saved her and you feel like you're in this really kind of uh, tough pattern that you've gotten into, but you don't know your way out. How could you? Um, we see a lot of kids with 504s and IEPs. Um, we didn't have any of that when Chelsea was little. Um, it's kind of like making our own accommodations. Yeah. Teachers. Right. Do you think that's necessary? I don't know. I, I kind of like, is it getting kids out of things or is it helping them? Well, the formalities of 504s and IEPs may be necessary if folks aren't stepping up to do that uh, anyway. What I find is that having a 504 in place for a kid with SM doesn't necessarily tell me anything about the school, the school district, and their relationship with the family. So I did a fabulous intensive in Wisconsin a year ago, November, and they developed a 504, and the mom sends me email updates, and she says, we love having our meetings, everybody's still happy with the training you did for us, and they just codify 
some of the accommodations. But here's the really important part of the answer to your question. Um, one person's accommodation is another person's enabling. Mm -hmm. So if they quote unquote let Chelsea do her book report by video, then and if she's never spoken in front of her class before, that's a really great way to have the Chelsea's in the world be able to participate in book reports. Now, wouldn't it be cool if the teacher said, boys and girls, I know you usually write your book reports, but this time around, anybody who wants to do a video book report can do that. And that way you're not singling out the, the Chelsea's of the world. And that's actually what happened with a nine-year-old girl I worked with who was in Gifted and Talented. The teacher just opened it up to everybody. So, from you know, I'm going to give you a really good example. John Colmeyer comes to me when he's going to college and he would say, you know, I, I have no, he, he gives me permission to talk about this stuff. So <laughs> being out of school and no HIPAA violations. Uh, he says to me, would you write me a letter to get a single? I said, are you out of your mind? He said, no, I need it. I said, fine. If you commit to working with me to get to the point that you don't need a single, then I'm happy to write you a letter to get you a single. So that's an accommodation in service of working towards things that will help remove the accommodation. Because when it comes to anxiety, we hope that you can eventually learn to do without them. Other accommodations aren't going anywhere. If you're deaf, you're blind, these are, you know, to some extent, permanent disabilities that will always require accommodation. So I'm not saying all accommodations need to be faded. But the ones that we put in place are meant to be until we give you the skills to be able to do the thing that you're not able to do. And interestingly, the word accommodation in the educational world is a good thing. In the OCD world, it's a bad thing. It, it means enabling. Okay. <laughs> the English language. So yeah. accommodation is a funny word. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I know a lot of people like PCIT SM, so we use rewards. It's a reward-based system. I guessing I, from what it we does read, use right? words, that's true um i don't want to misspeak because I'm, I'm the mom um but a lot of parents out there call it bribing but i mean it makes me so mad <laughs> <laughs> and, you know in a negative way like we're bribing i'm not going to bribe my child but hey you know what bribe is you know what a bribery is <laughs> do you a bribery do you is something <laughs> a bribery is something intended to induce illegal immoral or unethical behavior <laughs> So I have no I have no qualms about this. Um, <laughs> how do you explain it, that to a parent? Well, that's how I explain it. Yeah, that's how I explain it. And we talk about paychecks and bonuses. Uh -huh. um, one of my employees set up a meeting with me, and I'm sure they are hoping to get a bonus for their hard work. So it's not a bribe to reinforce somebody. And frankly, if the child can do these tasks without that secondary reinforcer, whether it's a token economy or, or any other kind of reinforcement scheme, then we do the work without it. Now, it happens that I pull the density of the reinforcers more quickly than anybody I work with. And for people not infused in ABA, that just means I'll use these other reinforcers less often, sooner, because I understand the ease with which the child is now responding and doesn't need the secondary reinforcer in order to maintain the behavior. The other thing I tell parents is I have never had a kid who finished treatment and was addicted to reinforcers. Sure. Never, ever. 
Especially where I always say, I think it's very, like, inherently reinforcing to be able to overcome your fears. Like, I find that kids who can challenge themselves, they often surprise themselves, and that's Mm -hmm. reinforcing by itself. However, however, (laughs) you're the eight-year-old kid, you're up in front of the room, and for the very first time, you eke out a whispered answer to something. Mm -hmm. I don't think it feels reinforcing. I think it feels less painful. Especially when people react that way yeah well yeah so that ability to have some distance from it and feel great about it i think that comes later with some distance from it yeah i agree you're just glad you didn't wet yourself you know that moment (laughs) yeah like i made it out alive yeah yeah i made it out alive (laughs) oh my god i know it used to be awful um what about teens our heart just breaks this is kind of one of the things like doing the podcast teenagers with selective mutism we just it just breaks your heart what um i don't know words of advice for teens like do you- well words of advice to the teens and the parents is you just never give up you know we i'll never give up on finding you the right resources and you can never give up on working your way out of what seems like a really deep hole. Um, I think you don't ask teens if they're motivated to get out of it because they could simply be demoralized and saying, no, I'm not motivated doesn't actually mean that they know that there's help on the way. Um, When I went back out on my own after CMI and NYU, um, I was very lucky to have Dr. Shelley Avenue with me and Shelley took the basic program that I had developed for younger kids and made a teenage adaptation of it that frankly I think is brilliant. Um, It's developmentally sensitive. It takes into account the likes and dislikes of teenagers, the ways in which they like to be reinforced or not. Um, And again, she's had more success with intensives than treatment as usual. So it may not fit the health insurance model. It may not be convenient. Uh, but from a purest point of view, intensive treatment, when you have that severity and that chronicity, may be required. You can't, you can't get out of it with like 45-minute weekly appointments. It just doesn't okay. make sense to me. Okay. Well, that's encouraging to know that there is a treatment plan for teens. There is. And, you know, unfortunately, we got to kind of give it some time. Shelly is one person who developed it in one office. Now she's... I know she's uh, done some training around the country. She would welcome training opportunities from other institutions. And that's kind of how change happens. You know, somebody hears about it, gets some interest. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of unmet need out there, to be sure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Out Loud, the Selective Mutism podcast. Make sure you're subscribed to hear part two.